Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. You're tuned to 102.7 3 R. Radio Marinara is the name of this program. Triple R is where you are. And uh, we talk about all things wet and salty every Sunday morning at 9am. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr Beach. Why are you Dr Beach? I'm very well, Dr Burton. <laughs> this dreary Melbourne Sunday morning. This dreary Melbourne Sunday morning. Thank you very much, Tim Thorpe, as always, for three hours of Vital Bits today. Three hours of Vital Bits yesterday as well. Hardest working man in community radio, you could argue. And uh, Tim will be back next Sunday for more Vital Bits. Thanks also to Andrew uh, for um, Soulful Bits and Steph for things to do today. We have got a jam-packed show, Dr Beach. We're heading west. Uh, we're heading west to uh, to Perth. We're going to talk to Dr Nerida Wilson um, about the Sea Dragon search and yeah, yeah what's happening with weedy sea, weedy sea dragons we, we have here, but they have them over in the west as well. Yes. Well, there's actually three types of sea dragons, so we're going to be speaking with Nerida about that. And Sea Dragon Search, which is a specific sea dragon community science program, so otherwise we call it, also call it citizen science, but it's, a, uh, it's really a national program that looks to harness the efforts and interest of um, people who just want to go and look for sea dragons and then enter their photos and observations and basically create a huge global database. Let's face it, who wouldn't want to go and just look for sea dragons? <laughs> that was part of my entertainment over summer. That's it. Uh, so we'll talk to Nero about that shortly. We're also going to be um, hoping we can get our Skype, uh, our Zoom call to work with Cara Hull, who is one of our two dive reporters along with Myra Kelly. Cara's actually over in Perth at the moment working with Nerida uh, on sea dragon search. So we'll, we're hoping we can speak with both Nerida and Cara about Sea Dragon Search and then hit Cara up for a Western-themed dive report. What's it like diving over there? Yeah, I've never done it. Have you? No, I haven't. No, lots of I've snorkelled yeah. once. I, I, I mean, it's beautiful waters down the south. I know. And all over the place up there. Up the coast. <laughs> it's definitely something that's on my list. So, uh, yeah, we'll get over there and get snorkelling and diving at some point. But, uh, yeah, Cara's there right now, so we're going to ask her all about it. And um, she's been doing some pretty special diving as part of Sea Dragon Search. Took a spectacular photo of a sea dragon um, off Cottesloe, which is the photo that we've used for today's Facebook promotion for the show. Very nice. And then after that, we have something very special. We do. Um, so we, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Tim Winton has a new three-part series called Ningaloo Ningaloo which has um, started um, being screened on ABC TV every Tuesday at 8.30 for three Tuesdays running. So the first episode screened uh, Tuesday just gone and then the next two are coming up. So last weekend um, Tim was in town for uh, about half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So we managed to um, get him into the Triple R Studios, which was wonderful, and, um, and really just spend half an hour talking about Ningaloo, the system itself, Ningaloo, Exmouth Golf uh, and Cape Range and how he has presented it to not just an Australian audience because um, this is going global and really talking about the the natural phenomenon that is that are these three different sort of ecosystems intertwined but then also exposing some of the vulnerabilities with the layer levels of protection that exist at the moment. I got onto iView yesterday and watched it, a, a, a very beautiful show, uh, the, the filming of course and, and, and but, but also Tim and his engagement with the local and it, it was, yeah, I look forward to the rest of it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty special. Triple R.
We've got time for a little bit of news. Uh, I'm going to look at Nerida, who is panelling for us today, to see if we've got one minute for a quick bit of news. Yeah, one minute while we uh, line this Zoom call up. Uh, we've talked about water bears sometimes on this show. Tardigrains is another name for them. So who doesn't like a story about water bears? <laughs> this one um, is entitled Bio-Inspired, Claw-Engaged and Biolubricated Swimming Micro-Robots. Oh, wow. Creating active retention in blood vessels. Uh, people in China have been looking at microbots or micro-robots to deliver medications uh, to people, primarily in their blood system. But what trouble is we build these little micro robots because you have all that plasma and stuff scooting through the circulatory system it can rip them off the sides water bears tardigrades are very good at clinging onto things in flowing water so they have these very cute little claws on them um, all you have to do is google tardigrade and you will see the claws on these very sweet little animals these um, water bears uh, anyway these dudes in china have used um, the water bear claws to Build a better micro-robot and then they encapsulate it in a membrane so that it will then sit inside a blood vessel and it will stay there. So this is um, yeah, a paper which has just appeared in Science Advances this week. Um, yeah, very interesting article. Anybody will be able to have a look at that. So just um, you can Google uh, bio-inspired claw engaged and that will pick it up for you. Brilliant. I don't know if you've um, seen the latest Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but they're the baddies in it, I reckon, are modelled on tardigrades. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And you are listening to Radio Marinara. Now, what's not to love about the sea dragon, one of the most spectacularly weird fish around, despite being icons for marine biodiversity, there's not a lot that, well, there is a lot that we don't know about sea dragons, which makes their planning of their conservation difficult. Now, fortunately, Sea Dragon Search is doing wonderful things to fill that knowledge gap. It's a collaborative research project that seeks to expand understanding of wild sea dragon population distribution through meaningful community involvement. Dr. Nerida Wilson is a Perth-based marine scientist. She's founder of Sea Dragon Search and it's a great pleasure to cross to Perth now to speak with her about Sea Dragon Search along with Marinara's own dive reporter Cara Hull, we hope, who's uh, over in Perth also taking part in the program. Good morning, Nerida. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you with us. And, um, good morning, Nerida. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Oh, we got a bit of echo happening there. Yeah, we're good? Okay. Um, and, uh, yes, we've got to get – unfortunately, we've had to cross you on the phone. We've had a few technical difficulties at this end. Um, let's start with some basics, Nerida, for listeners not familiar with the mighty sea dragon. What is a sea dragon? Can you ex- describe them for us? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, they are a fish, which you can lose sight of because they are so strange. But if you think of a seahorse, which is closely related – Think of a seahorse sort of tipping forward and swimming more forward like a fish, and then they have these wonderful um, skin appendages coming off them that look like little pieces of weed, so it helps them camouflage with the environment. So they're pretty funky looking, aren't they, Dr Beach? Uh, they are. They're very beautiful. Hi, Nerida. It's Dr Beach here in the studio Hi. with Braun over in the over in Melbourne. Uh, yeah, very beautiful things. There's, there's a few different species, aren't there? We've talked um, a couple of times on this program and I've certainly enjoyed, like many of our listeners, observing them under the water um, here. Uh, we have, the, I believe it's the, the, the weedy sea dragon and the, and the leafy sea dragon. What, what, have you got one over there that's slightly different? We do. We have a third species um, only recently 
sort of discovered called the ruby sea dragon. And that's only found in deeper waters, so divers don't really tend to encounter it all that much. But, yes, so far we only know that from Western Australia. Yeah, this is a pretty recent find too, isn't it, Nerida? Yes, yeah, I think it was described in 2015, um, and so we're still, yeah, just learning where it lives even. <laughs> so so it's, it's quite deep, is it? Do, do you still have the, the other two species over there that we have here? We do, yes. Both of the, um, the shallow water species live in Western Australia. Now, I mentioned you're the co-founder of Sea Dragon Search. Um, let's spend a few minutes talking about the program itself. How did it come about? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I actually got involved through genetics work um, and we were subsampling little skin samples from sea dragons to understand the population connectivity and we needed to find a method to make sure we didn't resample the same individual sea dragons because that just mucks up your statistics. So um, we looked at the face patterns and realised that they were quite unique to each individual and you could use that to, to monitor individuals in a population. And we thought, hmm, that could be useful. <laughs> so, so did, did you, Came back to it. <laughs> you said face patterns, is that what it was? Yes, yep. <laughs> they do have very sweet faces. So, so the patterns, so, so there are different colourations on the face? They have, uh, um, the weedy or common sea dragon has a lot of uh, spot patterns on its face and body, um, and so we can use those. And the leafy sea dragon has more sort of stripes and splotches. I don't really know. They're sort of funny zigzaggy lines. So, yeah, both of those can be used. Now, looking at the uh, Sea Dragon Search website, um, we've already put a link to that on our Facebook page, so just click on the photo of the Sea Dragon and and it'll take you there. Um, You've got sightings recorded everywhere from just north of Perth. I can't quite tell from the map that's on on that page, but everywhere just north of Perth in the west to Newcastle in New South Wales in the east and pretty much everywhere in between, including all around Tasmania. So the district, that was something that blew me away. We're so used to Sea Dragons here in Victoria because it's actually our marine emblem, um, our state yeah. marine emblem. But um, the distribution's huge, isn't it? Is it right across the entire Southern Reef? Exactly. Uh, I think it's really neat that the distribution of the, the weedy or common sea dragon almost matches exactly that great Southern Reef. So, yes, a bit north of Perth, all the way around. Actually, for them, up to near Port Stephens. Wow. So, yeah, huge. Extraordinary. <laughs> Big job. Yes. Can they be found, are they anywhere else in the world or is it just in Australian waters? Do, do you get them in just, New Zealand? No, no, they're actually just in Australian waters, which does make them quite special for us. Yeah. Hey, uh, what's your work told us? I'm interested sort of digging a bit deeper into their di- distribution. Do they live in quite genetically diverse groups or do you, are you sort of st- – um, this might be too much because I know the whole um, – uh, too detailed a question because the whole point of your program is to, to start collecting data on them. But do we know anything about their genetic diversity? Yeah, so what we understand so far is that they do have quite genetically structured populations and that just means you don't get many immigrants moving from one population to another. And then that means that if you have a problem in one population, you're unlikely to have new immigrants moving in. So we need to look a bit more carefully at managing them them at a smaller scale and not thinking of that, oh, well, you know, they're just a species that occurs everywhere. Yeah. Now, from a community participant perspective, we were hoping to talk to Cara, but we haven't been able to do that. We'll we'll catch up with Cara um, hopefully next week and we can talk to her a bit more about diving in Western Australia um, and, and her involvement in sea dragon search as well. What do people do when they're recording an observation? I've noticed our own uh, dive reporter, Myra Kelly, she's on your um, submit a leading board with a whopping 
health observations and photos submitted. Um, what do what do members of the community do as participants? Yeah, so we basically just ask people if they're already in the water and photographing sea dragons, that they just upload those images to our website. So they need to know where they saw it, when they saw it, and share their contact details. But that's kind of um, the, the limit. So there's not a bunch of training and things that needs to happen, but just need to be willing to share your images, although you still retain copyright of them. And then... We use those images um, to look at those face patterns and match them. But as we were saying before, it's a really big job. And so we use tools like machine learning and artificial intelligence to help us do it at scale. So it's, um, it's, it's a nice blend of, of high technology and then just people power as well. It's fabulous. Yeah, fantastic. Um, we're going to put, uh, well, as I said, we've already put a link to that on our Facebook page and I've noticed that you've got some collaborating organisations. There's the Western Australian Museum, um, University of WA, um, but also Victorian National Parks Association. Does Sea Dragon Search feed into um, ReefWatch here? Uh, the connection there is that there was a project called Dragon Quest that was run by Cade Mills um, and so that project kind of, wound up but actually has really lived on through sea dragon search and so we're still monitoring those same sea dragons which is really lovely to, to build on such a great foundation oh absolutely and your database just continues to grow um Nerida, we'll have to move on it's been wonderful speaking with you but let's stay in touch because I, I really want to sort of see how this program develops over into the future um sea dragon search and it's pretty simple website seadragonsearch.org um we've already put a link to that on our facebook page as i mentioned but thanks so much for joining us this morning and Look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Dr. Nerida Wilson in Perth. Oh, she's got up super early. It's only 20 past seven there. That was very good of her. And nice to hear the Dragon Watch, um, which many people here will be aware of, certainly at the bottom of some of our piers around the bay. You can see Dragon Watch signs. So that is continuing with um, with this program. Yeah. Triple R. Now it's time for you to go and uh, make yourself a nice warm drink and settle in because the rest of the show is really focused on Ningaloo. So Ningaloo, Ningaloo, as we mentioned at the start of the show, if you've just tuned in, a new three-part series which is currently airing on ABC TV, um, produced, written and uh, all put together by Tim Winton. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Triple R. On the mid-north coast of Western Australia, World Heritage-listed Ningaloo Reef is one of our planet's last remaining wild and intact environments. Connected to its neighbouring Cape Range and Exmouth Gulf, Ningaloo Reef has existed in different variations of thriving, dynamic and balanced ecosystems for more than 20 million years. This relatively small but extremely important section of the Australian coastline has provided a place to live for thousands of species, including those endangered or extinct elsewhere, and for more than 40,000 years, land-dwelling humans. Despite its global recognition, Ningaloo, Exmouth Gulf and Cape Range are still under threat. But how can this be? Do people in general, and decision makers in particular, not understand their value? Do they all take it for granted, or do they just not care? Despite decades of campaigning to bring these values and threats to public attention, the challenge to keep the protection of Ningaloo a priority remains. After spending four decades writing about Australian coastal life, Tim Winton has taken on this challenge 
by taking his words from print to screen by way of a three-part series for ABC TV. Joining forces with traditional owners, scientists, experts and friends, Ningaloo Ningaloo presents origins, surrounding forces and ecosystems of Ningaloo Reef, Exmouth Gulf and Cape Range and the challenges ahead for us to ensure its defence and ongoing protection. To tell us about this love letter to Ningaloo and his hopes for what this love letter might do once it's received, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to Triple R and to Radio Marinara, Tim Winton. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's, uh, it's lovely to be here. It's actually been a few years since you were last here. Last time you were speaking with myself, um, Mick Sowry and our Dr Surf about changing surf culture in Australia. Yeah, that was uh, all before COVID. So I, I haven't crossed a border since I think 2018. Yeah. yeah. L- I had to show my visa to get in, of course. <laughs> well, we've all had sort of this three years of living in some altered state and it's done a lot for all of us, I think, in different ways. And I guess for you, this is what we're about to talk about is the result of that. Yeah, I mean, it was conceived, I mean, I, th- I think 2018, Peter Reese, the director, um, the guy who made Mythbusters, approached me and so it's been sort of gestating since then. We we ended up in pre-production before, uh, I think, the pandemic and then during and then we shot during the, the lockdowns such as they were in, in WA, a little bit of a different experience than what, what you faced in, in Victoria, obviously. But, yeah, we, we ended up shooting 57 weeks, more or less, without a break and... Um, it was it was quite the experience, you know. We once we got crew there, nobody, you know, we it was really difficult to cycle people in and out. So we ended up more or less with a, a skeleton crew, just just busting it out the best they could. So we got to know each other very well. I was thinking about that 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 it was the maker of Mythbusters who had this idea because a lot of this series is about busting myths, isn't it? It's about busting myths about all sorts of different things, the protection of the Ningaloo system as it is, um, down to the traditional owners, some myths that still pervade about terra nullius. Mm. Yeah, look, there's a lot of sort of counterintuitive things to uncover there. It is a pretty remarkable place. It's a difficult place to make television in because it's, it's remote. I think the average temperature over the over the year and a bit that we were shooting was well into the 30s. It's windy, it's tough, you know, you're working with animals and, you know, with a film crew, with children, one way or another. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really challenging and difficult thing to do. And I, to be honest, I didn't want to do it. I had to be talked into it. Because, you know, I don't know how to write television, or not certainly don't know how to write natural history for television. But I, I just felt that, well, once I found out that the, the funding seemed to be contingent on my participation I felt a, a bit obliged and also Ningaloo is coming up to a really in the midst of a really pivotal moment in its history and to let this opportunity go kind of a gener- generational opportunity it's never been nobody's ever made a in-depth long form um, blue chip uh, natural history show about the place I just thought well if not if not now what, uh, when and if not me who so I, I sort of went with it and so I was sort of indentured to a, a different form of life for a, for a while. 
Was that one of the hardest parts for you, having spent four decades writing, where you're your own boss and you've got your own thoughts and that comes out onto the page and I, and I guess there's work with editors when you get to publication stage, but going from that kind of working state to working with, with massive teams of people and over 100 experts in various different fields of science and then obviously the the really important and the really important work that you were doing with traditional owners as well. How, how was that? I'm thinking particularly of the scientists because scientists are very precious about what they do. They have great passion for what they do as well and, and having everyone sort of feeling like they, they have an investment in this and, and a stake. How was that? Yeah, I mean, as, as you say, 40 years and 40 years plus, I guess, as a sole trader, lone, lone dog, you know, you're used to just being in a room on your own all day with people who don't exist. So you have a certain measure of control and... You know, having to collaborate with so many people in, in, in so many different fields. Yeah, I was just you're scribbling in a lot of columns simultaneously. But it was, a, you know, it's, I've, it was a privilege, really. I mean, I've always been interested in marine science and, you know, I had read quite a, a lot and obviously about Ningaloo. But to, to get that kind of depth of contact and content was terrific. And... We were, as you mentioned, able to collaborate with the traditional owners at a really crucial time. You know, we started talking about this in 2018. The Bayungu people only got native title over Ningaloo in 2019. So, and they're only coming back to country and taking up joint management of country while we're making the show. So we're able to document some of that and also, you know, document you know, the first archaeological dig on the on the Ningaloo Peninsula in a in a generation. And it was extremely moving, you know, to to be there and to, to document that as they come back, see their see their places, see their artifacts, and come into a kind of after years of being dismissed and treated really poorly, scraped off country by, you know, by government policy and a kind of a level of residual hostility that they've had to face coming back on the country and being, you know, being employed in positions of respect and, and authority. Yeah, a great thing to witness and, and I think it's there in the show. Oh, it absolutely is. It's super powerful. You can see that it's providing the evidence, that all three episodes collectively provide that evidence that is going to be need, needed, which we'll get on to in a little bit, talking about Exmouth Golf mm. and having that added to the whole Ningaloo system. Yeah. Who have you made the series for? Uh, I think I, tr- I think we tried to make it for the broadest... I mean, it's going global, so we tried to make it for the broadest possible audience, not just for ocean lovers, not just for nature lovers, but for the average civilian who might not have a clue about this strange place at the end of the earth that they've never heard of and can't pronounce. And in a sense, yeah, to, to try and make it as as broad, as Catholic a, an experience as possible. And that's why we needed, that's why we needed three hours. You know, we just couldn't, we couldn't be honest about what this place was within one hour of television because the level of compression that we've had to do, I mean, we shot 2,000 hours of footage <laughs> so we had to make really tough and sometimes ugly decisions about what goes in. You know, we had to make three hours out of 2,000 hours. It wasn't always fun, that part. Some of that footage is incredible. I've seen already 
you're being compared to, well, you're being called Australia's answer to David Attenborough. I don't know how that <laughs> sits with you. <laughs> I must get a safari suit. <laughs> the quality of the footage is comparable, though. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, there are moments when we, we get there. I mean, obviously, a BBC budget, they would get per sequence what we would get per episode. So that in terms of the resources to be able to do stuff. But, yeah, we, we, it, I think it looks good. It's not an, an Attenborough experience in the sense that this is natural history, but it's also it's through the, the lens of my life and my connection to the place. So it's a, it's a little different. And I guess Attenborough doesn't write it. You know, he shows up. And also, I guess what's different is that it's coming from a position. It's not pretending to be neutral, as if there is some possibility to be neutral. And I've never really enjoyed natural history that carves the nature out from the politics and from society, the idea that what you're witnessing is just some kind of separate natural event that has no context to anything outside it. Mm. So that was, that was part of the brief, you know. None of us wanted to make a show that was, that was safe. It's natural history, it's natural present and it's natural future as well. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Yeah. Let's go to the episodes. There are three of them. First one's called Collisions, the second one, Connections, and the third one, Choices. It's all about handing glue was made, how it thrives, and then some of those unanswered questions about its future. To me, it felt like an environmental triptych in a way. You've got these three ways, three different lenses of looking at, at this really special, comparatively small piece of coastline, but having those, those interconnections. Yeah, I mean, the traditional way that you would do this is you'd just look at Ningaloo Reef in one episode, you'd look at the Cape Range in the next one and the, and the Exmouth Gulf in the, in the other. And that's kind of map behaviour, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's, it's, it's the kind of thinking that, I mean, we all grew up with, but it's essentially part of the colonial dispensation just to divide things up in that way. And the whole point of the show is that these three ecosystems interrelated and constantly in contact with one another and dependent on one another. And so we, you know, we tried to weave that through the, the whole way. And the, the, the kind of naff metaphor that I found for that was, you know, the emu's foot. The emu is the, is the totem animal for the TOs. You know, it's a really interesting thing to see this enormous bird and it's just planted on these two feet. Each foot's got these three gnarly-looking toes on it you take one toe out and that bird's in trouble to stay upright to to get leverage it needs all three toes and that's the way I've in the last you know five or ten years I've come to see those three ecosystems as organically related and necessary to one another and that's not just a an ecological fact that's that's politically important But ecologically important as well. I didn't realise until I saw how critical a role emus have in seed dispersal and continuing that role of of plant biodiversity in the region. Yeah, I mean, Australian plants have that weird thing where they're not very good at dispersing their own seeds and they, they require animals to do it. And as we say in the show, there's only one animal that can really do that on a, on a broad broad scale landscape level just by dispersing it, you know, travelling through the country and just shitting, shitting everywhere. Yeah. And the seed, when the first time you see an, an emu pup, you know, it's, it just it looks like a, I don't know, it looks like a nut milkshake, you know, and it's just half digested and undigested seeds that are just spread through. So it sort of stops, the, you know, it's one of those, one of those things that stops the fragmentation of really important landscapes. 
And in that part of the world, it's so arid, as we say in the show, the country sweats more than it rains. The rate of evaporation is higher than the rate of precipitation. There's all these tiny, tiny mechanisms that are just keeping the place alive. And it looks so bloody dry, but it's full of water. Everything you're walking on, whether you, whether you know it or not, it's just you're walking on rivers of, of uh, fresh water, deep underground. The um, ant ecologists listening right now will be saying, what about the ants? There's a whole field of study about ants and seeds. I remember when I was at uni, that was a big thing in Australian ecology circles was ants and seeds. Yeah, and there's a nice little sequence in there with these ants dragging these seeds underground, doing the, doing the plants bidding. We had a bit of fun in post-production just trying to pick the right music to, to, to go with it. I mean, it's hard work and they're doing hard work, but they can't help but look slightly comic. You can't tell if they're fighting over the seed, which is, you know, twice their size or they're, you know, it's, it's funny. It sometimes looks like the seed is planting the ants. Triple R. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. We are right in the middle of a conversation I had with Tim Winton about the natural phenomenon that is the Ningaloo Reef, Exmouth Gulf and Cape Range ecosystems and Tim's new production, Ningaloo Ningaloo, screening now on ABC TV. Just before the music we just heard, we were talking about various complex ecological processes that govern and drive the Ningaloo systems and Tim's approach to filming the series. We return now to the conversation about the three episodes in turn, starting with a focus on the natural forces that collide to shape Ningaloo and everything within. Let's talk about that collisions episode in particular. You've, you've got your obvious things though, collision of the oceanic currents, collision of water with the desert, collision of phytoplankton and krill and their predators. It's all about energy, isn't it really? It felt like that to me anyway watching this. It was all about energy being generated from those collisions. It's true. And the cycle of energy is, is remarkable and also just the impacts of those collisions. You can see things have been broken off, things have been shoved up, and the energy's not dissipated, it's continuing, you know, and you, when you go deep underground, you can see that it's still alive. The energy generated by those ancient rock figs is still able to chisel down through 20, 40 metres of, of limestone, cracking this, levering this rock open to get to water, and that energy is being sent back up and producing food and then you're suddenly you're seeing under the same rock fig over the top of a, a cave that's 100 foot deep there'll be a, a black flanked rock wallaby eating the fruit you mm. know this, this strange connection of worlds that you know the, and the wallaby will never get to see the nether world that's that's producing the fruit that it's eating then it gets its water from the fruit that it's eating mm. that's the only source I wanted to ask you about that episode in particular. It probably comes with a trigger warning for people who get claustrophobic like me, watching you kind of squeeze through those tiny holes to get down into that cave system. What was that like? I, don't, I couldn't have done it. Put it this way, I probably wouldn't have done it if I didn't have to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had to do it several times. And also we had to, you know, we had to get all the gear down there as well. So, you know, on the screen it looks like two middle-aged blokes kind of wriggling around, but it was two middle-aged blokes rigging all around while four other younger and older blokes were pushing cameras and, and sound gear and platforms. And it, was, it was crowded down there. Mm. We had the old CO2 alarms going off every now and again and just we're hoping that we weren't going to suck up all the oxygen that was down there because it was bloody hot. Yep. You know, it's 100% humidity. It was in the 30s. 
and black as a dog's guts. It mm. was just, wow, when you turn the lights off, it's terrifying. It must have felt pretty good to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, um, just that last bit when you come out from the squeeze, you're not really into fresh air because you're still in the cave system, but just the fact that you can, you can stand up and move your arms and not feel... Yeah, but to be up to your, up to your bottom lip in the water and have the roof over your head a couple of centimetres over your head and, and just... Um, yeah, it's not comfortable, no. but but it's incredible. It's an incredible subterranean system, and to go down there and to see, you know, this ancient eyeless fish that's never had eyes, that just lives in the dark. You know, it's been there since the dinosaurs. Um, just the idea that the Cape Range used to be covered in rainforest just mm. blows my mind. And you've known about this this fish for a long time. Yeah, it was a, it was a big part of the World Heritage listing. The Steiger fauna and the Trogler fauna are a really big deal globally. Really, really rare. These things only live in these caves at Ningaloo and nowhere else in the world. But yeah, to actually to actually see these things that we've been writing about. Yeah, it's it's pretty special because you know they become they become kind of mythical. You see them in the books and you and you and you read about them in the papers, science papers, but have one swimming around the palm of your hand, or as ended up sucking on your t-shirt, mm. uh, like three, four, five, ten of them. Pretty yeah. I mean, more people have been on the moon. Yeah. Second episode's called Connections and lots of different connections in here. You've got your geophysical ones between different systems, especially that incredible footage of that King Tide event where you've got country being connected to sea with this kind of really rare once a year. Twice a year, Twice yeah. a year experience where you've got this flooding of the salt pan and underground cyanobacteria that all that, that just change everything. Yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting system and it's been, it's been a great sort of learning journey for me in the last decade. We were always focused on, on the reef. We were always looking west, which is a bit of a West Australian thing, you know, being on the desert, on the island looking out. But once we turned our focus on the other side of the peninsula into the Gulf, just these enormous salt pans that are visible from space that look barren and, and salt miners love the look of them because they know they can turn them into, into salt mines. But they're enormously productive. These are, this is what generates the, 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 the most productivity for the Gulf, which is 2,600 square kilometres. It's really, you know, it's nearly 50 times the size of Sydney Harbour. Mm. But when the water touches that cyanobacteria, it just unleashes this big charge of, of energy and you see all this greasy stuff floating on the, on the surface. It's carbohydrate. So land is feeding the sea and sea is waking up the land and it's, a, it's a, an amazing thing to witness. You've got two feature animals in this episode, dugongs and manta rays. I can't remember whether you mentioned it in the series or whether it's something that I've read, but the dugongs are kind of like the animal that that exhilarates you more than anything else or lifts your spirit. I can't remember mm. what the actual phrase was that you used. But, yeah. yeah, there's something very special about dugongs. Yeah, I think all, all the marine mammals just make my blood fizz. But, yeah, dugongs are just so... They feel closer to us, even closer than the, than the dolphin. And they're... they're Yes, that weird two nostrils and and when you hold them in your arms, which, you know, no one's really allowed to do except under scientific permit, you know, I get to hold the animal. You can feel its vestigial shoulders 
their bodies are just a, a lot like ours. Well, I used to wonder why, how ancient mariners used to think of them as mermaids. But yeah, there's something gentle and wise. They're, they're clever animals. They're, you, know, you can see, and also when you see them aggregating in, in hundreds and the way the herds um, operate and the way they are with their young, the way they can just feed while suckling, you know? Mm. Um, just like, like busy, busy mums getting on with life. <laughs> feel that evolutionary connection too? Yeah, no, no, no question. And, of course, these are animals that breathe, and whether it's a, an orca blowing snot in your face or a humpback whale covering you with, you know, with their sort of krill breath or more like fasting, fasting vegan breath, actually... Uh, it's, um, you, you know that it, you know it's that kind of breathing animal closeness thing. I mean, it's probably not very healthy to be covered in um, in cetacean spume, but there is something really intimate ab- about it. Uh, you, know, you know, we can always wash your hair afterwards. Exactly. I want to move on to the the third episode called Choices, and and this is really what this is all about, isn't it? It's that culmination of everything in the in the previous two episodes about looking to the future and and what it comes down to, and as you say, the challenge is now, and it's really about looking at Ningaloo, the Ningaloo system, and how it's going to survive the Anthropocene. Yeah, and you know that's a the threat that we're all dealing with in all places. So it's not just about Ningaloo. It's this is just focusing on one place in terms of those kinds of problems. But yeah, look, Ningaloo has immediate threats and it has longer term big threats. You know, the immediate threats are the fact that the two ecosystems are protected. They're national parks and they have national heritage and then they have world heritage. So they're essentially safe from immediate industrial sorts of activities and they're managed well. Exmouth Gulf tragically was supposed to be part of the World Heritage listing and that listing was white-handed by politicians I think doing the bidding of certain industrial interests and that's a kind of tragedy because that's meant that the door's still open for industrialists to try it on in the Gulf. There's a company trying to build a deep water port which is a kilometre long right in the middle of the the whale refuge in Dugong country. I mean, I, I know I know the site very, very well. I'm very intimate with its with its underwater world, and um, that's kind of a disaster in the in the making. If you can imagine the dredging and the the heavy shipping that they're they're bringing, it's essentially a a kilometre long wharf with a fuel dump. You know, mm. so it's a servo. And the other the other immediate threat is a, a German salt company want to turn all those wetlands, or a big chunk of those wetlands, hundreds of square kilometres of it into um, salt mine. Mm. So they're, they're the immediate threats. Of course, the broader threat is the fact that all of these systems are fragile and they're all at the mercy of the pressures of the Anthropocene and the chief pressure is global warming, climate change, or climate chaos, really. The, the industries that are generating so much of the pollution that's causing that are so close that people don't realise that Ningaloo is encircled, almost besieged by the fossil fuel industry. And those companies that claim to be part of the solution, I mean, they want to keep scraping fossil fuels out of the ocean for as as, as long as it's legal, basically, for as long as we'll let them. In a sense, it's, it's up to us 
to make our governments afraid to let them continue. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, what, that's what it comes down to. I, and sure, we have made some movement and government have made some movement on that in recent days and that's encouraging. We know it's not enough. The science has made it very plain that it's not enough and the people need to make it plainer to our leaders that it's simply not enough and the clock's ticking and time's too short to be farting around with these incremental bits and bobs. There's a great piece towards the end where you've done work with Paul Gamblin over the years in saving Ninglu Reef and he says, with enough will, good science, good things can happen. Sometimes that's not enough though and it's about making the most of what you've got in your kit. So you've got the people who are behind this and obviously once this goes to air and people see it, you'll you'll have a lot of people, you know, people listening to this right now, people who are going to be watching the series. But we've also got a pretty receptive Prime Minister at the moment who's going to be arguably more receptive to driving change than maybe some of his predecessors. Is that something that maybe could be considered having that political push and working with him? Yeah, well, let's let's be honest. You know, we made this show under the under the, in the dark years of the Morrison um, dispensation, when it was clear which way the wind was blowing, and the show has been delivered into a into a new dispensation. So there's reason there's reason for hope. As I say in the show, I think it's a mistake to load hope up with some kind of emotional expectation, as if hope is something that you have to feel like a. Um, in an instinctive way. Hope is what you make. Hope is what you fabricate. Hope is what you reproduce and pass on. It's what you, what you make out of determination and, and fight. It's when you refuse to give up. That's what hope's about. So, yes, I think we're in a more hopeful situation, but the situation is infinitely more urgent than it was a decade ago. We've, we've pissed away, you know, the best part of our last chance of having some agency over this. So now is the time. I mean, it's now, now, now. Go hard or go home and dig a hole. Good note to end on, Tim. Thanks so much for joining us today. We've just been speaking with Tim Winton about his amazing new series, Ningaloo Ningaloo. Actually, this was my first question, which I didn't ask, about the pronunciation. So two very different spellings. Is the pronunciation the same? Pretty much. I mean, the blackfellas say it the same way as us. They've just got some more letters in it to make it, you know, to make it look great. Ningaloo Ningaloo is being broadcast via the ABC in Australia. Also is Ningaloo Ningaloo, Australia's ocean wonder to more than 130 countries via Love Nature in Canada. Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and via Sky Nature in the UK. Always a pleasure, Tim. Look forward to catching up again soon. That'll be fun. There you have it, Dr Beach. Uh, that was um, a very beautiful thing, Bron. Speaking with Tim Winton last weekend and about his program, as we mentioned, Ninglu Ninglu. Uh, first episode's already screened on ABC. You can catch it on iView. And uh, the next episode, uh, episode two, uh, which will broadcast this coming Tuesday at 8.30pm and then the final one next week. A few people to thank with this one, um, Jenny Darling and Associates and in particular Anya's Lindop who set this one up for us. So thank you so much, um, Anya, for that incredible opportunity to speak with Tim. Also, uh, Adam Christou and Mel Fulton here at Triple R, Triple R Talks production. Biggest thanks to Tim Thorpe um, for recording that interview, editing it as well, and uh, taking some photos and uh, being uh, just an all round good guy. Good guy. And it sounds like, I was about to say to you before, like it, it sounds like a delightful experience meeting Tim and talking to him like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, this is, I suspect, the beginning of um, a, a long push to get 
that entire ecosystem the level of protection that it needs, uh, ultimately heading for World Heritage Protection. So stay tuned because we will be following this one through. It was important, that conversation you had towards the end there talking about um, how the, the political climate has changed. Tanya, Plibersek, let's hope. Yeah. She can do something. It's time, as Tim says, now, now, now. Um, wanting to also so thanks, obviously, to Tim Winton. Thanks also to uh, Dr Nerida Wilson uh, over there in Perth today. And a big shout-out to Cara Hull, who put us on to Nerida Wilson, and we had intended to speak with Cara both as part of that interview but also for a dive report. We're going to do that next weekend. I've been uh, liaising with Cara while we've had our, um, our chat with Tim on, and uh, Cara and Myra will both join us next week for a West and East segment talking about diving on both sides of the country. Awesome. Thank you, Dr Beach. It's been my pleasure. You're about to head away for a while? I'll Yeah, I'm um, heading elsewhere for, well, almost a couple of months. Excellent. Enjoy might, your... Might, might do a phone in from somewhere, but Definitely. Yeah, we'll see. We're going to line that up for sure. Um, <laughs> thanks so much to Nerida and uh, our Nerida, who's been panelling for us today. And uh, thanks also um, to you for listening and for supporting this program as you do. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. They will be taking you through to 11 o'clock when Dr Shane and the scientists will take you through to 12. Have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next weekend for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.